Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. That's right, it's the joke that just refuses to die because, frankly, I revive it every single week. Because <laughs> you won't let it die. <laughs> yes, there is that. Um, <laughs> I, of course, am Scott Phillips and he, of course, is Andrew Page. I'm the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer here in Australia. He is the Managing Director and Founder of Apparently, it's a private investment club. I, I'm not sure if that's true. Strawman.com. Did I get that right, Andrew? I think you have. I think after however many episodes we're up to now, you've, you've got it. Uh, you know, I'll forget me. Well, I'll conveniently forget next week. It's all about theatre. It's all about the theatre. People, you know, it's, it's theatre of the mind. It's illusions. It's it's grandeur. It's, you know, it's the <laughs> vibe. So. It's Marbo. It's the Constitution. It's pretty much just the vibe. Uh, mate, let's... <laughs> should, we, should we do some mailbag? Should we let's, move on to... Let's do some questions. All right. Let's not, let's not spend time with me talking about me. How about you talk about me for a second? Um, speaking of which, we got a question from Sam saying, Hi, Scott and Rampage. Of course, Andrew Ram Page, for those who don't know. Uh, I'm pretty proud of myself to give you that nickname, mate. I, I, it's still uh, still how you're referred by some at The Motley Fool, even years after you're leaving. And, of course, now our listeners refer to you as Ram Page too, which I just it tickles my fancy. Mate, uh, I've, been, I've it, been called many things and a lot worse than that, <laughs> so I'm happy to wear it. Oh, I've got to try harder. Okay, Sam <laughs> says, I know you guys are strong proponents of investing globally and not just sticking to the ASX. To this end, I'm wondering if you can explain the relevance of including notes in ASX announcements to the effect of not for release to the US, sorry, to US wire services or distribution in the United States. I've seen this in many instances, but why would this be relevant to an ASX listed company that has nothing to do with the US, either from a listing perspective or operationally? Cheers, legends, and that's from Sam. I know the answer to this one, but I assume you do too. Um, I. I've got this really strong feeling that I do know it, but now you're reading out and I'm just racking my brain. Like, why is that? I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm going to embarrass myself and then hand it over to you. No, I'll jump in on that one, mate. I, I didn't know if you... It, look, this is... It's a really good question, Sam, but it's one of those just... Okay, have, have you noticed the US are particularly litigious? Have you noticed that? Because I've noticed that. And it turns out that this is basically... You've know, got to love the lawyers, right? I, I, I'm never sure whether to blame the lawyers or thank the lawyers. It depends on what side of the case they're on, probably. In this case... The U.S. securities laws actually allow, um, believe it or not, U.S. courts to take action against companies that aren't even listed in the U.S. if they don't adhere to U.S. securities regulations, which is stupid, right? Maybe that's the benefit of having of being the world's only remaining superpower, um, albeit China's trying to challenge it. Uh, but basically, yeah, it, it, it's possible for a U.S. investor to take action against an Australian company for releasing information that doesn't meet US securities laws. And even, so if lawyers, it, even if it's not listed there or it doesn't yeah, have operations there, yeah, it could be completely hey, nothing to yeah. do with the US. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think I did great? know that. I think yeah, I so there you go. So basically the 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 lawyers in their, you know, in their um, wisdom, and, and frankly it's probably true given the law the way it's written, um, it was, you know, it's kind of, I, it's, a, it's a dodgy analogy and I, and I don't even, I, I want to be careful when I talk about it, but, Australians can be uh, arrested and tried here for crimes committed overseas, even if those overseas countries. I'm thinking about sex crimes in particular here, and I won't go into more detail on that because it's not it's not appropriate viewing and listening for many people. Uh, but suffice it to say, you can go overseas and then come back and be charged with offences you committed overseas, even if that country doesn't uh, charge you for those things or, or even have laws against those things. So um, yeah, it, 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 it's it's a par- it's you know again very very different scenario and way less serious. It's only a financial crime, which is still serious, but um, way less serious than others. Um, but yes. That, that's basically the, the foundation of it. Mm. And so they, they disclaim up front, hey, don't send this to anyone in the States. And by doing so, 
they aim to stay on the right side of the US regulator and any courts when they when someone says I use this information and I you know I was misled by it um, the, the disclaimer of hey don't 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 show this to anyone in the states don't give it to anyone in the states don't put it in any US wire services is supposed to keep people away from that one. Mm. I'm sure no one in the US reads these ASX announcements. Oh, of course they don't. They, they, they see that warning right. and then they go, oh, not for me. Got <laughs> <Yeah>. to <laughs> close it down. Exactly. My exactly. mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so funnily enough, the same was happening with some short cases. Did you know, remember that when um, there's businesses listed in, I think it's Asia or not Hong Kong? Based in Asia. Might have been. Uh, who basically wrote a short case about Australia and then said, but you can't, you can't send it to anyone in Australia. Yes, um, yes. Again, again, I assume to try and avoid falling afoul of those of those records. Again, yes, I, I don't know if that's true, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was true. Yes, and for, for very similar reasons, right? Same central thing going on. All right, here we go. Uh, next one from Bernard, uh, and he says, um, uh, "Here we go. I, I'm sending an email that I hope you can pass on to Scott and Andrew to let them know I appreciate their respectful answer to my question on Sunday's or Thursday part two's of Bernard podcast." They could have told me to pull my head in, but didn't. Uh, patiently and thoughtfully explain the answer to my question. Now, this was the one about uh, why the, the companies I deal with weren't giving me decent answers as to why they wouldn't add features to my to the service. Um, Bernard mentioned a couple of platforms and kind of went, hey, I've asked them, and they kind of wouldn't say, you know, why they wouldn't, just that it wasn't part of their business case or they weren't planning to and didn't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, he, said, uh, he said, it's great they mentioned it. They remain down to earth and in good humour. You guys give finance people a good name. He says, if only my other two service providers could do the same, but at least now I know why they can't or don't. Uh, The podcasts are constantly brilliant and greatly add to my trust in your philosophies, as broad as it is, and my learning about investing and to my bank balance with a smile. That's always a win too. I do listen to other finance pods, he said, and they are just not a good fit for me, but I find them useful in better understanding what people are doing in the investing and or speculating world of the stock market. The good oil is also really good. Thanks, Bernard. It helps me to have an... (laughs) Oh, there you go. It helps to have an interviewer who knows his stuff. Thank you, mate. Cheers to all you fools from a happy full member. Oh, you you read all that out. There wasn't even a question there. That is very very self-serving of you. I kept on waiting. Where's the question? No, there's no question. (laughs) Bernard Bernard sent us some feedback, mate. You know, I thought it was reasonable. (laughs) Come on, back off. (laughs) All right, here we go. Uh, Lee says, hi, fools. I've been thinking more and more about leveraged ETFs lately. I'm allergic to that word, but uh, Lee, but we'll keep going. Which have achieved some eye-watering returns since they came into being in the last few years. As an example, there's a thing called TQQQ, which which is a leveraged ETF based on returns of three times the NASDAQ, which Scotty has indicated he loves as a long-term investment, and I do, and has achieved a return of 59% over the past five years compared to the normal NASDAQ ETF, which is unleveraged, which has returned 22.5%. So 59 for the leveraged one, 22.5% no leverage. I do understand there is risk with these investments as you stand to lose three times as much during a downturn. But if you work on the theory the market long-term eventually rises and you're happy to take some short-term volatility to capture long-term returns, why wouldn't you pick the leveraged option? Can't wait to hear your thoughts. And that's from Lee. I don't know this instrument, mate. I don't know if you do, but generally as, a, as, a, uh, as an approach, as an idea, what do you reckon? Well, when I was like you, when I first heard the word leveraged ETF, I thought, oh, you know, it's it's just, it it, it does. It, it, it magnifies the good, but it magnifies the mm-hmm. bad. But this is an interesting question, though, because they're saying, well, I get that, but at the same time, markets go up uh, mm-hmm. over time. So none of us seem to hesitate at borrowing 80% to buy other types of assets, such as property. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, are happy 95%. to do it because it goes up, to, it goes up yeah. over the long term. So I... Yeah. 
I don't think I disagree with that statement, but the devil will be in the detail here. Mm-hmm. How do they achieve that leverage? <laughs> yeah. What what collateral liquidity requirements, et cetera, et cetera. So there's nothing right. I could probably say, yeah, I can cop a much ex- more exaggerated loss in a downturn as long as I get the exaggerated gains in the upturn because I know that mathematically is going to work out well for me as mm. long as this vehicle is, is able to withstand even the sharpest of sharp mar- market fall-offs. And still, and still mm. remain a viable in, in, uh, entity, and that there's no margin call on my part or anything like. I don't know how you a- effectively do that without getting rid of it or any of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, mm. Mm. I, I, I'm just guessing here. What, what, what do you think? The devil's got to be in the detail, right? Yeah, the devil's absolutely in the detail. And here's the problem: as we know, um, you, you've got to know how they will deal with meaningful market falls. They are using leverage by definition. Maybe their leverage provider is wonderfully thoughtful and kind and will never, ever, ever margin call them, or maybe not. (laughs) And Mm. so the challenge with three times leverage is that you can have your equity wiped out really, really fast. Mathematically, the market would have to fall by somewhere only about a third to wipe out your entire equity. It might be less than that because the way the equity works on a declining balance, particularly when it comes to a margin call. Mm. But in theory, your equity would be completely wiped out if the market fell by a third because you're, you're triple leverage, right? The value mm. of the whole, the whole thing goes to zero. Now, at some point between nothing and you know nothing minus 100%, so at some point on the way down, if there is a margin element, you might never get that much of a decline. You might never get a third. You might struggle before you get to that point. Um, it's it's a... Yeah, I, I, again, I, mean, I completely agree with you, right? If, if, you, if I could find an investment now that let me borrow... Here's, here's a, just for the fun of it, right? If I could borrow right now my entire rest of my life's market contributions, I could borrow that today mm. at a reasonable interest rate with no margin calls, I would do it right now. Yeah, yeah. And I would invest it right now. Regardless of where the market is or isn't at, like at any, at any point in the last 10 years, any point in the next 10 years, if you said to me, you can you can invest your entire rest of your life's contributions at whatever, the, no matter what the market level is, now I guess it was stupidly high, I might, I might rescind that, but let's assume mm. it's not going to be, you know, crazy. But on the ASX, for example, or maybe wouldn't do it. I wouldn't make the guarantee on the Nasdaq because we, we've talked about it on Friday, the 1999 boom. Mm. Uh, but, you know, if, basically, you know, if you say, look, you can, don't worry about the market level. I, if I could put in every single dollar I'm going to put in at the market in the next 25 years, put it in today at, let's say, 5% interest, just pick a number. Mm. If I could do that now with no margin call, I would do it tomorrow. I would do it today. I would do it yesterday. Yeah. Um, so I love the idea of being able to do that. The, the simple reality is that I can't do it without a margin call. And so I, I wouldn't do it. It would, it would make no sense um, because at some point, if I get called away like that triple leveraged ETF, um, if it gets called, then, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a nice idea. Um, but if and when the thing, everything goes badly, it goes badly really, really badly and really, really quickly. So um, I don't know the structure of this one, so I'm not going to give an absolute answer on this one. Uh, but what I would say is that leverage generally, you know, Warren Buffett says never be reliant on the kindness of strangers. This is one of those kindness of strangers investments. It might be fine if it's not, if it isn't, if it doesn't, <laughs> um, and it brings you down, then you might be in some, in some, yeah, a little bit of trouble. So I, you know, like everything, when leverage works, it works wonderfully. When it doesn't work, it works really, really, really badly. I'd be, I'd be very careful. So I, I personally wouldn't use it um, because of that risk. Now, if I did do some more research on it and was convinced there was no possible way I could have that money called away or no possible way to go entirely broke before I made those squillions of dollars, I would do it in a heartbeat. Mm. If you gave me a, a triple leverage with zero margin call um, you know, and a long term, I would do it, sure. But I don't think you're going to get that option because no one's interested to do that. If someone's, if someone's giving you the other side of the deal, you've got to wonder what they're getting for it, right? Because if they're going to lend you money uncallable, 
at lower rate than they can get themselves in the market, you know something's going on. Yeah, they're taking all the risk, right, and giving you all the upside. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Not going to happen. No, I mean, there's a lot of money in it, right? It's, it's mm. a, um, there's $4.3 billion worth apparently of, of money in this particular ETF. So it is, it is what it is. Um, I, I get it and I know it seems um, I, I know it seems attractive and I know it seems like an easy bet, but is that downside you need to be careful of? Having said that, just more yeah. generally, I've I've taken debt time to time against the yep. margin loan or whatever. I've, we've spoken previously about yeah. some of the advantages of borrowing against, say, your house uh, mm-hmm. as well because you don't have that margin call. But in all instances, whatever way you structure it, the key thing, the key thing is you – know, it, it wasn't just leverage of this thing. It was triple leverage, right? So you yeah. can still get a lot of benefits. <laughs> so, you know, I could have an LVR of 30% on a margin yeah. loan or something yeah. like that. I've still got the risk of a margin call, but the, the odds yes. – and again, assuming I've got half-decent companies in here, but the odds yes. of, of yes. being um, – the degree of a fall I would need before I hit a margin call, a 30% gearing, is much, 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 much more significant than what it would be if it was 70% geared, which is usually the maximum you can go up mm. to. So, mm. you know, there's leverage and there's leverage. And, and yes. just the further you sort of push yes. it, there's, there's, there is – I mean, I know we're generally and most people are generally negative about it for very good reasons. But if you honestly know what you're doing and you're careful and you're very conservative, I think there's a, a place for it. But, uh, yeah, just just – just don't push that push that dial too high because it, it can easily blow up. I think that's true, mate. I I I'm going to be a little bit you know pedantic about this one. I actually agree with you theoretically. Um, my absolute concern is with those middle twenty percent of people who think they are the people who can use it well and end up not using it well. And so it's kind of one of those things where you know I, I use the example all the time, but ninety percent of us say we're above average drivers, um, which by definition can't be true, right? And so. And by the way, I've had I've said this before. I've had group people say, "Oh, it can be possible because you're above average because it's a median, not mean, and all that kind of rubbish." Spare me, pedants. I love you. I'm a fellow pedant, but you spare me on this one. Um, you know, those who think they will or have or could use it well. Actually, you know what? There's an article in the AFR only yesterday. Apparently, um, experienced male investors are most likely to panic during a crash. Yes. I saw that and too. That, so yeah. experienced, right? Not not novices, not just blokes. Experienced, yeah. blokes. And so you know, I, I, my, I, are you actually like like everything, mate? Like you are you are absolutely logically, rationally, one hundred percent correct. If you use margin well, it can be fantastic. The problem is the if is a it's you know it's the, it's the longest short word in the English language, right? Like mm. if you use it properly, we all think we're going to. We all think we're ninety percent above average drivers, right? Yeah, I back myself. Of course, I'm a good driver. Yeah. It's like well, it turns out you're not as good as you think you are, and I don't want people to find that out. In, in a crash, right? So, yes. so I, you're absolutely you're absolutely 100 right. I would still say to almost everybody, despite all that, please don't use it because maybe you know maybe you benefit from it a little bit, or maybe it costs you a whole lot, and you don't want to find that out after the fact. So yeah. that, that's my only my yeah. only warning for people who who feel like they might be the exception to the rule. You're probably not, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, we mentioned it on on uh, Friday, right? Like, what what what, yeah. what benefit in getting forty percent gains for three years and then being wiped uh, out on the fourth? It just, yes, you know, that's you, exactly. You, it. Anything times zero is zero, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Mate, here's one from Nick. Love the podcast and the banter. Thank you, Nick. There's a lot spoken about passive investment. Being a passive long term investor myself, over time I've noticed better performing investments in my portfolio. Given I invest equal amounts of money into each investment regularly. My question is whether a passive portfolio should be rebalanced every now and again, or whether maintaining equal contributions and not rebalancing would be preferable. Would love to hear your thoughts on the pros and cons, or whether it is inconsequential. And that's from Nick. What do you reckon, mate? Yeah, it's a really good question. Is um, it? Yeah, I think. Well, 
one thing with equal weightings is that as soon as you set up the portfolio, the next day they're not long, they're no longer equally weighted. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because some of the stocks are going up, something, and then as that goes over time, those weightings really get thrown out. I mean, you could always add to it, so you're always trying yeah. to keep it the same. I think there's yeah. there's something that's attractive about that conceptually, but mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. like it. Um, if I'm being honest, I, I yeah. think I'm a I'm a big proponent of. Not mm. all investments are created equal. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I think I've often said I think you should really try and hold the, you know, the 15 very best companies that you can. But even within that 15, mm. there'll be some that you like much more than others. And yeah. there'll be some that just, you know, objectively at much better value than others. And I think that the, you need to sort of have this weighting, which is a factor of quality and value. Mm-hmm. And if you've got, if those things are lining up, yeah. then, yeah, I'll have... 15, 20% of my portfolio <laughs> in a stock and, and, and 2% in another one um, yeah. because, because the, 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 it, it merits it based on my conviction, my understanding and, and the rest of it, um, which is all good and well. It makes a lot of sense, mm. but it mm. does, does rely on you being right <laughs> on that yeah. investment. Um, so you do have to be too careful not to, not, to, not to go too hard into any one direction. But, yeah, I, I, I think um, – I was reading some Tom Gardner stuff on Twitter actually the other day, the founder, uh, one of the founders of The Fool, and he's basically saying never sell. Like just right. literally never, ever sell. And yeah. just buy – when you've got more capital, just add it to your best idea at the time. And mm-hmm. as you, of course, you know, you'll, you'll have a whole bunch of losers at the end of it. But it's, as he's making the point that really well, – this is true of the index and it's certainly true for, for most investor portfolios. When you look back in yeah. 10 years' time, you'll find that the, the lion's share of the gains were made by a very small handful of stocks, maybe mm, even one mm. stock in your portfolio. Yeah. Um, and it may be the one that performed really terribly at the start and that you were, were tempted to sell out of. But if, 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 if you've got those real game-changing ones in there, um, you're probably best off just, just adding your, to your best ideas as, the, as, as you see them at that point in time, realising that ones that don't work, that's fine. You'll cop a loss on that, but that'll be inconsequential mm, mm. next to the ones that, that become the really big multi-bag winners of tomorrow. But for that to all work, you just need to, you just, you just need to resist these temptations to <laughs> pivot and restructure and locking gains yeah. and et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, but it's, look, there's, there's no right or wrong answer, right? I guess mm, there's, there's mm, a horses mm. for courses argument here as well. I'm keen to hear what you think. I am torn. And the reason I'm torn, mate, is because if I think about the way that the question is phrased, it's absolutely phrased about rebalancing. But I'm also mindful that we can't give personal advice as always. So, yeah, I'm just, you know, as, as for every question we answer, uh, we can't tell Nick what you should do. But not only is Nick talking about rebalancing his existing holdings, but also he's still putting money regularly in equal installments into his other ETFs. And so kind of by definition, there's kind of, as you say, mate, there's that strategic question about what is he trying to achieve and, and which horses for which courses. And so at some point, if he's thinking... I am putting equal money into these ETFs because I want to be equal weighted in them. If that's the intent in the first place and he's doing it for diversification reasons or for volatility protection mm. or for, you know, or for something else or, you know, or just believes in mean reversion where he'd expect that, you know, sometimes some – individual stocks I actually agree with you, mate. Um, ETFs might be a different case just because yeah, you wouldn't true. necessarily expect long-term outperformance from a single ETF – 
Well, it depends what it is. Maybe if it's a lot of, he says he's passive, but if there's a lot of thematic ETFs which are really not passive, but they're kind of active mm. bets just with a, with, a, with a passive makeup. Uh, so if you if you buy, for example, a cybersecurity ETF, it's passive in the sense that you're not buying and selling stocks, but someone else is picking that theme for you, right? It's only an ETF in the in the in the sense it's a structural ETF. It's really a, a it's a fund, a cybersecurity fund, right? It was not passive, but assuming he's genuinely passive and he's got maybe a a Vanguard ASX 300 and a BDCS Nasdaq 100 and a Vanguard Global, you know, MSCI index or something. He's doing an equal installment on the way in, probably because he wants some sort of exposure in some sort of you know equal sense. And if that's the, if that's true, then rebalancing would make sense to maintain that if that was actually the goal. To your point, mate, not only would I not necessarily do that because as long as you're reasonably passive and you're happy with the mix, then you should keep going with it. Um, but I would actually also be looking at the stuff I'm putting in. Because you might simply say, look, I don't want to sell my winners because, by the way, there's capital gains tax and other stuff amongst that as well as anything else. So I, I, I would be really hesitant, as you say about Tom saying, no, never sell. I think it's a, probably a pretty good approach. Um, but you might want to think about how you change the money you're putting in accordingly. If you find that, for example, uh, let's say you've got a Vanguard ASX 300 and a NASDAQ 100, just to make it simple. If your NASDAQ is now 75% of your portfolio because it's had a good couple of years and the ASX has done well, but not quite as well, you might simply say, okay, well, I'm going to change what I'm putting in and put in some you know, money into one of the ETFs in, in different proportions rather than actually rebalancing what you already own. Because there's two ways to rebalance. One is sell down and move stuff around. The other is input, influence it with the money you're adding to your portfolio every week, fortnight, month, quarter, year. Um, and, and invest in those proportions that maybe do address some of that rebalancing impact without literally selling or buying to rebalance in itself. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I like that. Uh, that. That's generally the way I've done it, um, uh, to yeah. be honest. If I found myself a bit of extra capital that I, that I can invest, I, I, will, mm-hmm. I will factor in the existing weightings. Uh, you know, is there anything that needs to be topped up or whatever? But again, it comes back mm-hmm. to the individual investment merits of each one. But that's, mm-hmm. it's a nice way to, to rebalance without having to incur tax and brokerage charges by selling down something else. Yeah, I think so. I think that's exactly right. Um, again, I, I will say, Nick, this is probably not addressed to you, but ETFs aren't ETFs. Oils ain't oils. A passive ETF. Uh, ETF is not passive just because it's called an ETF. You probably know that, mate, but for other people who might be listening, uh, a cybersecurity ETF is not a passive ETF. A gold ETF is not a, not a passive ETF. A leveraged uh, oil ETF is not a passive investment. Um, passive ETFs are broad, low-cost, index-based a NASDAQ 100, a ASX 200, a, a S&P 500, um, whatever, you know, Nikkei probably, a London FTSE ETF. Um, but yeah, if, if you think you're a passive investor, but you're buying a cybersecurity ETF and a gold ETF and an oil ETF, you're not passive. You just make, you're letting a fund make bets. So um, for, for what it's worth. Yep. All right, mate, let's, uh, let's move on to one from Greg. This is interesting about uh, share entitlements, mate. And so Greg says, I listened to your podcast from 26th of September and noted with some surprise your comments about the share entitlement offer from Big Tin Can, as if it was something unusual. It seems to me that it's become commonplace after COVID took hold and many companies did exactly this. Specifically, they'd put out an offer at a 20 to 25% discount off the current price to existing shareholders with the option of applying for up to $30,000 worth of shares. Typically, this would be massively oversubscribed and we ended up with a small fraction of the shares and the remainder of the application cash would be returned. So just quickly for those who haven't done this before, they let you apply for up to 30 grand worth of shares, but to a total value of X million dollars. And so if, there's, if, they, if they want to raise 5 million bucks, but $10 million worth of money is sent, they will basically scale everyone back by roughly half. It's kind of how it works. That's what um, Greg's talking about here about the money, the ex- excess money being returned, which is what happens. You've got to send the full amount up front. It's a good, it's a, it's a nice scam. You get to send all the money up front, 
you get to send back what you don't want rather than mm. saying, oh, you applied for this much, send me a check for the difference. Mm. Uh, this happened to me, he says, with Cochlear, Babcord, Dicadata in May 2020, and Kogan in July, Sezzle in August, Corporate Travel and Over the Wire in October. I will disclose I own shares in Kogan and Cohen Corporate Travel. Uh, Alcidian in April 21, followed by Big Tin Ken in September. I also have two offers outstanding, namely Aussie Broadband and... Hazer. These are just the ones I'm aware of because I have shares in them. I assume there's a lot more besides. Around the middle of last year, I was constantly moving money around in $30,000 lots just so I could take advantage of this. It does not seem to have any downside. If you didn't really want to keep the shares, you could sell them the next day for a 20 to 25% profit, which I never did. Uh, Scott, I love your emails. They are more about life lessons than just investing. Keep them coming. Well, thanks, Greg. That's regards from Greg. Mate, he's right. It's not unusual. I don't know that we... I didn't intend to suggest uh, that it was unusual. It's certainly semi-regular. Probably isn't super usual for people with a larger cap portfolio. Um, even at a list you've mentioned there, Greg, pretty much only Cochlear kind of meets the traditional blue cap in air quotes definition that Andrew and I both hate. But um, So it's probably unusual if, you, if, you're, if you're a larger cap investor, they're more likely to be sending you money rather than calling for money. Um, I, I don't know if there's a, not really a question or comment there, but you just, you just mentioned there doesn't seem to be any downside. Is he right, mate? Is there, is there downside to buying shares in a share purchase plan on a capital raising? Yeah, well, there's nothing that's risk. I mean, totally get the point. Um, gen- mm-hmm. Generally speaking, you, you, you can do that. But there's no guarantee. Mm. There's no guarantee yep. that the, the price stays high um, yep. uh, afterwards. And, and I'm trying to think. There's been some examples um, in the past of that, you know. Yeah, um, so it just it, whenever whenever something whenever you see something that looks like free money, yep. it's not. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's a yeah, that is yeah. like it's it's very hard to have ironclad yeah. rules in in yeah. this world. But that's that's a pretty good one. Um, there's yeah. there's no such thing as a free lunch. I, I think yeah. when it comes to investing, so there's look, there's definitely much lower risk things, and you know there's uh, much higher risk things, and there's a spectrum mm-hmm. there. But um, the the other the other interesting thing, it's a bit like the Keynesian beauty contest, right? Mm-hmm. Like enough people mm-hmm. will try and do this, then it doesn't mm-hmm. work either. You know, we're all going to buy our shares and then flip them the day that they we, we get issued them on market. <laughs> well, then just, you know, there's not yeah. going to be the buyers there to, to the absorb all. It's, just, it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what I, I guess the, the question here is, is not directly, but sort of asking, could this be a viable strategy? Just taking an opportunity to invest mm. in in every every share purchase mm-hmm. entitlement mm-hmm. offer that, that, that comes along with, with with the hope that there's enough of a discount and there's a bit of a premium when the shares come true. Uh, the fact that, oh, well, maybe there is, but, you know, mm. I, I guess if it was a if it was a uh, opportunity that was easy enough to prosecute it, someone would be prosecuting it and they're very active mm. then prosecuting it would arbitrage any advantage away. <laughs> there's there's yeah. that argument too. Yeah. I'm tying myself up in knots, mate. Help me out here. What, what do you think? No, I think you, I think you did right, mate. It's, it's a really interesting one. Um, Stephen Main, the the shareholder activist, the uh, sometime uh, council uh, uh, councillor, uh, made a lot of money apparently many years ago doing exactly this. He bought a dollar, one share in every company. Because the thing is, if you buy one share, you get you get to spend the full share purchase plan, right? Mm. So I can own one share of big tin can and then send them 30 grand for shares at a 20 to 25% discount. And if that discount does hold, I could sell them the next day and make some money. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely possible. Uh, it's absolutely possible. A uh, couple of things probably to think about. Uh, so look... Upfront, yes, it's possible. If you're going to sell on day one or day three or day seven or day 12 or day 364, 
you're paying the full capital gains tax whack, so be mindful of that. Secondly, if you do it too frequently, the ATO is going to consider you a share trader, not an investor, and you're going to have your gains taxed as income, not as capital gains overall. So just be mindful of that. I'm not a tax advisor, but the ATO does will make a distinction as to whether you're carrying on a business as a share trader or whether you are a, an investor, and they, they do make that distinction. Um, unlikely, I think, to trigger that reality, but just be a little bit careful. The more you do it, particularly if you're selling after you buy them, the more likely you're going to be seen as a trader. Um, thirdly, I think it's a good strategy if you like the companies anyway. I've said to our members regularly, we very rarely take partnership purchase plans at the Motley Fool. And the reason is largely because, I've, I think I've talked about this before, and if I have, stop me. But if you think about this, think about the human brain, right? There's 1,800 companies on the ASX right now. You can buy any one of them. And yet you get one letter in the mail saying, hey, can we have some cash, please? You go, oh, yeah, sure, okay, I'll send you the cash. What are the odds that one company is the best place for your money out of all the other 1,800 companies that are available on the ASX? Not very bloody high. <laughs> so, you know, if, if, if I don't know, pick, pick two companies, right? If Whitehaven Coal sends me a, a shareholder purchase plan and I could, or I could invest in, I'll say Afterpay for the fun of it. It's listed, but, you know, it's coming off the market. But, you know, it was, they said this was two years ago, right? Or 12 months ago. Uh, I sent Whitehaven some money because they said, hey, buy my shares, please. And I said, I, I don't invest in Afterpay instead. What was I better doing? And it's that it's framing, mate. You, you mentioned context on Friday. I'm going to choose a different word, a psychology word, which is framing, right? The way you frame a decision changes everything. You get a letter in the mail saying, please send me some money. You're going to think about that. If every, every one of the 800 companies sent you a, a letter saying, could you please buy some shares in my company? You might consider that, right? But because you don't, you don't get a letter from them, you get a letter from, in this case, Big T Can or someone else. And they say, hey, could you please send me some money? You're like, oh, okay, you sure? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Would you not be better putting that money somewhere else? Very possibly, very possibly. So keep that in mind. Last one I mentioned is one I did mention last time, but I'll do again. If someone's doing a 25% purchase plan, guess who's getting screwed? The current shareholders. Because if the shares are genuinely worth, I'll, I'll make my numbers easy, four bucks, and they're offering you shares for three bucks, someone else, including you maybe, but everybody else, is getting a chance to dilute your ownership for 25% less than the current price that you own your shares at. So not only, yes, you look, you know, again, framing, right? You, you get a letter go, oh, wow, I get to buy these shares cheap. That's awesome. What the companies actually do, what they should send you a letter is say, hey, um, we're going to dilute your ownership by 10, 15, 20, 25%, 5%, 3%, whatever it is, by giving everybody a chance to undercut your current share price. You, put, you paid a higher price, but bad luck, sucked in. We're going to let everybody else buy shares cheaply because we want to. And I'm not saying these companies are bad for doing that. Some of them absolutely needed to. I wouldn't have got through COVID, right? Some are doing it because investment bankers get in their ear and say, hey, you better raise some capital. And by the way, I can have a million dollar fee. Thanks very much. And, you know, so there's lots of good reasons why you should do it, could do it, would do it. Lots of good reasons for companies to do it. But just remember exactly what's happening here. If they offer it a discount, they give you everyone the chance to dilute your ownership. It's like, it's like if my wife went out and said to someone in the street, hey, do you want to come and buy a, a room in our house? I'll give it to you for half the price we paid for it. You're like, what? Mm. Why? What? Hey, why? Mm. Why? What are you doing? Mm. You know, even if they said, even if they said to me, look, and what, you, Scott, you can you can buy half the, the room too for a cheap price. I'm like, oh yeah, I'd like to do that. Sure, that'd be. Hang on, <laughs> what happened to the other half the house? What's going on over there? Mm. Um, mm. You know, it's it's a, it's a silly analogy, it's an imperfect one, but just remember, you're being diluted at a cheap price. So the company's not doing you a favor. I promise you, by doing that, the market's not even doing you a favor. Yes, you might make some money. Yes, it might even be worth taking up. Um, just make sure it's the best idea you've got. Yeah. Did I rant enough about that? Yeah, I mean, we, we sort of said this last time. I mean, it, it, 
what you can say in hindsight is that these these were too steep a discount. If they're getting so oversubscribed um, and the price is holding up so well after the fact, it just it just plainly says you raised too cheaply. You could have raised at a much higher price and gotten far less dilution and much more cash and, and all the all the good stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, it 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 wasn't a good outcome for a lot of shareholders in Big Tin Can. In, 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 not, maybe they'll take that money and they'll do wonderful things for it. But it just, I think objectively, we can say they raised too cheaply, with hindsight. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. One from David. I really like this. I think you're going to like this one too. He says, Hi, Scott and Andrew. Thanks for a great podcast. Well, of course, we're going to like it, David. It's a good start, but we'll keep going. I'm a long-term investor who seeks to outperform the average of the markets by at least a few percentage points a year. Cool. Yep, we're with you. Many services such as the Motley Fool and Strawman exist to help investors find the winners to provide market-beating returns. So far, so good. David, you got a job in the marketing team. Well done. Um, he then goes on, though. He says, picking winners is not always easy, as testified by the number of active fund managers who fail to deliver market-beating returns after fees. That's true. They reckon about 80% of fund managers lose to the market after fees. As a result, he says, we are often told to build a core in our portfolio of low-cost passive index ETFs. But that approach won't be expected to beat the market. That's also true. Surely, he said, it will be easier to pick the terrible, failing businesses out there than the stellar winners. Are you aware of any strategies or products like ETFs that are broadly based across the market but pull out the absolute train wrecks. The serial capital raisers that never make a profit, the corrupt management teams, the speculative mining explorers, early phase biotechs, or lawsuit-threatened loss makers. Surely spotting a very bad business is easier than picking a clear winner. To get my few percentage points over the market, I could carve off the airlines and the turnarounds that mostly never turn. What do you think? I'm not talking about the dogs of the Dow-style approach as they were defined as high-yield blue chips that have fallen from grace. The dogs in my thought experiment need to be euthanized for good reason, while still leaving room for young pups with promise to grow in a large, healthy pack. What do you think? Best regards from David. Good, hey? Mm. Yeah, it, it's a process of elimination and very logically sound. If you take yeah. away all the bad stuff, ergo, you must Roger only be left with the, the good stuff. The fund manager stuff. used to say, to beat the market, you just buy the index and short the airlines. Which I, thought we, which I thought was a kind of a nice yes, way to, yes. to think about exactly yeah. the same thing. And, and David's on the same path with the law, law, with the airlines and others. I don't – I've never heard of anyone trying to do this, mate. It would be difficult to do because you've got to create your own effective ETF by buying almost everything but not everything. Um, and it becomes actively managed mm. to some degree. There are companies, there are ETFs that try to the almost the inverse. So there's the um, – I think it's Van Eck do a ETF based on Morningstar's moat methodology. Uh, in the US, now that's not at all mm-hmm. index lesser for you. It's it's actively choosing the winners, but kind of it's the inverse of the same, right? They're trying to pick twenty or thirty companies that are likely to keep winning. Uh, but that's again stock picking to uh, to David's point. One of the great questions I used to be asked in a in a Motley Fool job interview. I probably shouldn't give this away, but I will. Here's a, here's a heads up for anyone who's going to apply for a job. Uh, I don't know if you've ever were asked this one, mate, or whether you've you've asked it when you were doing hiring. Um, the question was if you had to build a portfolio to lose to the market. How would you do it? 
It's good, isn't it? I love that question. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's perfect. It's, so it's good. Charlie Munger's, you know, invert. You know, you know if, if you're trying to work through a question, always invert it. So mm. we say, how would you find some winners? You say, oh, I'll do this and this. Well, how would you make sure? You, how would you just? How would you make sure you lost the market? Well, I'd buy this and this and this. They're not necessarily the. You know, it's not the. Um, they're not two halves of the coin. They can be the top twenty percent, bottom twenty percent, the rest of the mediocre in the middle. But it's a really good question. Do you? Do, do you think it would work? Do you mm. think a, a, an ETF provider will provide it? How would you do it? How, how do you think about David's question? <laughs> It's the mechanics are hard. I mean, yeah. what are you whittling it down to? I, I you know, you probably what? Like, let's keep it broad. Is one of the big index tracking things. If you took the all odds, five hundred odd stocks, and you took out a hundred bad ones, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's achievable. But it comes it it it, it comes down to the detail. How do I, yeah. I? I I get the point that it's very hard to pick a winner. But I don't know if it's immense. It's not always. This is what that experiment of asking, you know, what would underperform the market. You know, yes, it, yes. it's actually. I don't know if it is as uh, that straightforward to, to pick mm, out the losers. Because mm. so a lot yeah. of the things that David lists there are actually great points. You know, corrupt management yeah. teams, serial capital raises, and the rest of it. <laughs> but a lot of the they're they're hard. They're things that are very manual and qualitative. Mm-hmm. I suppose it takes some. What yeah. what you and I might consider a a, a terrible management team, others yeah. may yeah. love. You know, and, and, and maybe we're wrong on that. Um, uh, some speculative mining explorers, for example, another one that David mentions, well, we know that was Fortescue Metals not that long ago. Yeah, that's right. Which is one of the best performing stocks on the ASX. So it's, it's – it's, I really get the logic and the reasoning. I really mm-hmm. do. I think he's right. I, I, think it would, I think it would be harder in reality than, um, than in theory. It's even to the point we've talked about before where people will say, and, and you know, I aren't necessarily disagreeing on this one, but just for the fun of it, we kind of, you know, set, set up a bit of a, 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 a to and fro or a pro and con on small caps. Yeah. Well, of course, you exclude the small caps because they're risky, right? Yeah. You're like, no, 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 you'd include those because they're not risky. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's a bit like ethical investing for me. I, I, David's point is absolutely right as a thought experiment, and I think it's the right way to think about it. Um, but, you know, how do you invest ethically? Well, you exclude the miners. Oh, okay, fine. Well, what about miners who are putting lithium into EVs? I know you include those. Oh, okay, well, then you take out the, the um, alcohol sellers. Okay, well, then you take out coals because it sells some grog as well. Well, no, because it sells other stuff. Okay, well, you leave that in. So, and, and you know, it, it's, it's incredibly difficult to define. Mm. And the same with this one. I think even I just pulled up a, a chart, right? And this is, David would say rightly, long-term is long-term. Over the last, I'm pulling a number, I've got a graph here just in Google, right? Qantas over the last twenty-two years has actually gained sixty percent. Yeah, so it's not it's not market value, uh, right? Yeah. Now between two thousand and seven, it was six dollars forty, and middle two thousand and nine, it fell by three quarters. Mm. But then between the thirtieth of December twenty thirteen, so eight years ago, and today, it's up fivefold. <laughs> and so you kind of you know do, do you exclude airlines? I mean. What's your time frame? Over, you know, you want to beat the market a few, by a few percentage points. I think he's right. By the way, I wouldn't buy. I wouldn't buy airlines. Mm. But as you said, I wouldn't buy miners either. And Fortescue has been. Is it is it the best performing large cap on the ASX? I'm almost certain it is over any length of time. It's, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's way up there. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know, do, do you miss that out? And uh, so that's hard. The other thing on index level is because indexes are indices are market weighted. Um, if you took out the bottom twenty of the ASX two hundred. Mm. The index return would be essentially the Not same. Not much different because the two hundred smallest, the biggest company is so tiny compared to BHP, Woolies, Rio, Telstra, Fortescue, you know, whatever. It doesn't even matter. So, could you beat it? I guess if you could, if you could find say uh, maybe ten percent of the ASX fifty, 
by weight and exclude that, you might start to get somewhere. Would it be enough to matter? I don't know. Um, the other thing I probably would say is by the time you've done all the work to, to do that, could you do, could you have just done pick the winners anyway or, or, or some that are likely to win? And the answer is probably yes. i got to say for us at The Monthly Fool, Share Advisor, the service that, that I work on that you've worked on with me before in the past mm-hmm. before doing other things, um, it went almost up to our 10th anniversary. It's literally a couple of months away, which is scary. Oh, wow. Um, and, but over that time, that's 120 stocks, right? Now, that that's 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 a taking us a portfolio. Other than, I mean, we've sold some, but you know that's 120 purchase decisions over 10 years. Um, in and of itself, that that's a really really big chunky bit. But we've managed to beat the market by finding those stocks and buying them. So I, I don't know, David. I I'm, I want to I want to think you're right, and, I, and maybe maybe I just am overthinking and trying to try to make it too difficult. But to Andrew's point, I do wonder what you'd take out and when. Um, if you didn't own Qantas for the last eight years, you've, you've lost to the market, right? Or, or at least Qantas returns have beaten the market over that period of time. Mm. And so you kind of go, man, well, hang on, but airlines are supposed to suck. And they do, and I wouldn't buy them. Uh, but over that period of time, at least, you know, how many of those have you excluded? If Qantas was X percent of the market and you exclude Qantas and Fortescue and then maybe pick another couple that have done well, even BHP pre the last iron ore sell down, I think it was even market beating over meaningful amounts of time. So even using my own criteria over that period of time, if I just try to exclude the losers and not overweighted the winners. That's the other thing, right? You you overweight the winners by buying the winners. So buying the best X number of companies does really, really well. Last thing I'll say on this one, mate, really quickly is in the US, something like the top four or six companies are responsible for something like 75% of the market gains or something ridiculously large like that. And so again, could you sell enough of the bad stuff to outweigh that? I don't know that you necessarily could again on a market weighting perspective in terms of what's contributed the gains. So it's probably all a bit of um, all a bit of that. Anything more on that, mate? No, I agree with all of that. I, I love the idea. I really love the idea. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I wish it was easily – maybe it is. Like, I, The other thing is, I suppose, if you do it heuristically, you've got to look backwards and assume that the past is the same as the future and then you, you kind of miss the opportunity to run with the gains as you get there. Um, c- could, I, could I go through the ASX and exclude stuff? It'd be a fun exercise to do, mate. I don't know if I'll, I'll have the time to do it, but it'd be fun to kind of be able to kind of just, just arbitrarily say right now, okay, take David's idea, take out airlines, take out speculative miners, take out biotechs, take out lost, lost money losers and go from there. Again, you'd miss Afterpay, right? And you'd miss Fortescue for the first X number of years of its life. And I wonder, I wonder what it looked like. It, it may well work, even if you could do it, which you can't because there's no ETF that does it, but it'd be fascinating. Here's one from Craig, mate. Just yeah. high Schofield and Pagey. There you go, Schofield and Pagey. I've been listening to the podcast since day one. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Craig. That's really that's really kind. There aren't many people who've. It's something a little bit these days, Ram. Like um, you know, the, the four hundred thousand people who say they were at the football game, where only fifty thousand people attended. Um, but but I hope it's true, Craig. There <laughs> yeah. we, we have that many listeners on day one. I think our first podcast was probably listened to by about fourteen people, including the two of us and five of the Triple M team. Uh, anyway, Craig was obviously one of that fourteen, which I appreciate, mate. You frequently say focusing on the macro is a waste of time and shouldn't influence your investment decisions. This is great advice. This is the question I alluded to last week. You think I want to spend the lion's share of each podcast discussing the macro. How do you reconcile the contradiction? Please spend more time talking about individual businesses. Isn't that what really counts at the end of the day? Kind regards, Craig. I'll leave this one off, mate, and I'll let you then jump in. Um, Craig, it's a really, really good point. And funnily enough, as I was thinking about this question, I was looking through the paper. Um, we, we, we literally, the physical paper, the, the, the uh, online paper, I should say. We uh, put the agenda together based on what's in the news. And you know what? It was really, what really struck me. I looked at the AFR and I looked at the Australian's business section, the SMH's business section, and the ABC business section. And you see how many kind of macro-y kind of stories. And I, I wonder if the AFR had to just do company coverage, how few pages there would be. Probably be it'd probably be a, you know, a, a four-page you know, double-fold kind of job and that'd be it. Um, 
It's a really, really good question, Craig. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why, and I did respond to you directly, Matt, but I thought I'd just drag it a little bit here because it's a good question. It's worth talking about. Uh, first is that, so it's kind of, I, I, won't, I won't get back into this deeply, Andrew, but so feed me the analogy, but it's kind of like ethical investing, right? I don't think people should invest in, in, in so-called ethical investing strategies. I know you disagree, by the way, which is cool, uh, but I think they're going to. So I own shares in Australian Ethical. Right, and so that, that's an absolute contradiction, right? Is am I hypocritical? I guess in some definitions, but I, I would say to people, don't don't invest in the company I own shares in. But I know they're not going to listen to me because, unfortunately, despite my delusions of grandeur, I know I'm not the foremost uh, 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 expert when it comes to most people's investments. Craig is obviously a discerning listener, but most people aren't, so they're going to do it anyway, right? So I'm like, well, okay, I don't think you should, but if you're going to, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to make some money off you. Is that hypocritical and craven and and you know whatever? Probably mercenary, maybe, yeah. Um, so, so there's that. Um, the, the, the simple reality, Craig, is that the macro is the world we live in. The macro is, if and honestly, the questions we get from from you, from others, uh, on Facebook, through email, at the Motley Fool, from our members, are those questions of. So the market fell two percent. What do I do now? We get. I get a dozen emails in reply every time I write a market crash kind of survival guide or a don't fret the crash has just happened. When I say crash, like down 2%. I get a dozen emails saying, oh, thanks for that. I really needed that. That was great. Or people saying, well, the market's going X, therefore I should do Y. And so honestly, we do it because we know that's what our listeners either are asking about or need to hear about. And for some people, Craig, you're like, dude, I hear it. I get it. I know I moved on. And I love that you have, and I'm glad you have. Um, but for most people, including, by the way, those in the middle of the teeth of the crash when it still feels crap and you just need someone to pat you on the shoulder and go, you know what, I know, but we'll get through it. That's kind of what that's about. And it's about contextualizing the investment uh, strategies and ideas in that context of, of the macro. Uh, and I said, because people simply ask about it, want to know about it, and we think, we hope we're providing a service for people by helping them understand what's going on. So that's, that's the honest answer as to why we do it. Um, it, it gives us some context. It's also... You know, we, we we try and cover the news of the day, the news of the week. And so a lot of the time that is, we, we talk about climate change a lot on Friday. Um, is it macro? Kind of. Is it company investment implications? We kind of hope so. Is there something to learn from it, take from it? We kind of hope so. So it's also, we try and make where we can um, those those stories, those responses, um, investment related or lesson related, or hopefully building our listeners' knowledge and expertise um, so they understand how we think about the world in those, in those examples. So that's how we try and do it. We do try and make it, <laughs> relevant, not just talk about it for the sake of talking about it. Maybe you don't always get it right, by the way. Maybe that's your point and we should probably think about that. Uh, but that's that's the answer. Uh, individual businesses, it's really hard, Craig. Um, I'm, <laughs> not, not, not that's your problem, but um, we do you know, 104 of these episodes a year and including, by the way, we always do over the Christmas breaks and other things. Um, and there's only so much you can do about individual companies without kind of going over the same ground over and over again, right? There's only so much new news we can add to company X or Y or Z. We could do a company deep dive, I suppose. We actually do that on YouTube, by the way. Um, just a quick gratuitous plug. We do stock of the week and stocks in focus where we do spend 20 minutes, half an hour on individual companies. So that's our, our aim to do that. Uh, but Motley Fool Money was always designed as, for want of a better term, a magazine show uh, where we do kind of cover a few different things in a few different areas and try and mix it up and make it relevant for as many people as possible. Well, hopefully you learn something, you have a laugh, you get entertained and you enjoy the hour or so you spend per podcast with us. Um, but that, that's that's a bit of the behind the scenes, a bit of the rationale. It doesn't matter it's right. I'm not defending it. You may well be exactly right, mate, um, for all I know. But uh, that, that's that's some of the thinking and just some of the some of the why um, giving you ask the question. Andrew, what have I missed up, got wrong, you disagree with? Oh no, nothing. Um, yeah, that's that's what the the show's about. I mean, I, I think Craig's got a point. I, I think mm. we it, it's always it's always helpful to put some of these concepts in a tangible, practical example, and and maybe we should spend a bit more time talking about specific businesses in in that regard. Mm. So yeah, I'll 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 try to do more of that. 
Yeah, there's your job for next week. Uh, I will try and do the same. It's it's funny, uh, just quickly before we move on, Andrew, you talk about putting things in context and again, you would use the word context on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it. One of my best, my favourite words because it is, it just, it just it matters, right? So important. It, it, mm. I was going to say contextualise everything but that would defeat the purpose. Using the word <laughs> to define the word, I learned in year three is not okay so I'm not going to do that. Um, there's a, there was a great, so Morgan Housel's a great writer and I actually think he's probably come around but years ago, he tweeted something that was basically on the lines of most books should be pamphlets, most pamphlets should be articles, most articles should be tweets, and most tweets mm. shouldn't be sent. Mm. <laughs> you know, and it was kind of like the idea of like, there's too much stuff. Mm. And instinctively, like, yeah, yeah, that's right. And again, like everything, I, I think I get more mellow as I get older. I've come to actually completely disagree with that. And the reason is that humans need stories. It is the context that matters. I can say, so we, we can have a one-minute one, one minute podcast every week which says, hold on, don't sell, thanks very much, see you next week. Right? And that would be that would be the best advice we could give people. We could add invest regularly, we could throw in dollar cost averaging, maybe extend it to two minutes and that would be the evergreen Motley Fool podcast episode where we just said to the guys at Triple M and listen, hey, just, just put, the same, put the same episode in, just do it again, run it again. If people don't notice, then great. If they notice, well, at least we sent the message. And that would be exactly the right advice, perfect advice. And no one would listen, no one would care, no one would take it in. If I tell the story of what happened last time around the crash happened, or I tell the story of a listener who asked the question and we can contextualise the answer in the context of that question, or we talk about the macro and how you should think about investing when the market's up, trends are down, airlines are going bust and whatever else. If I can tell the story about the airline, I've done a million times, and again, you talked about the value chain on Friday. It was really this podcast. I can't remember now where it's all blending to one. <laughs> uh, the, the value chain idea, right? We could just say, look where the value is in the value chain. I leave it at that. But when you say, here's this company called EnviroSuite and here's what they do and here's how they do it, da 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 it's like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And so, I, you know, I'm going to say, I, I absolutely get, some people won't want to listen to an hour-long podcast and that's completely cool. If this podcast isn't for you, I'm sorry about that. Feel free to let us know how we can improve it, as always. Um, and I'm not saying this to you, Craig, I know you're, you're a long-term listener, mate, so I'm going to assume you're going to keep listening and thank you. Um, but, you know, to my mind, we know humans learn from stories, putting the advice in the context of those stories and even to the, the previous comment we had about you know the my emails are often about life lessons as much as investing that's kind of the point right um so that's that's how we think about trying to help people understand the message make it entertaining make it informative make it a bit of fun make it worth listening to and if you come out of it a bit more prepared even subconsciously for next time then i think we've hopefully done the job we set out to do one from Peter, mate. Thanks for the podcast, he says. Dear Scott Andrew, thanks for the podcast. It's helped me a lot and I've pushed it and the approach you espouse onto other members of my family. We say push it, hopefully gently, Peter. We wouldn't want to be, we wouldn't want to be the, the, the whacking stick uh, for you and the rest of your family. But hey, mate, you, you know your family best. If they need a, uh, a clip across the ears with a bit of uh, Andrew Page and Scott Phillips love, then we're happy to be the, the tool you use to, to whack him into shape. Uh, he says, I've got a question for the Mailbag podcast, which is good because this is the Mailbag podcast. The traditional advice, he says, is to move from growth to bonds, fixed income and income stocks as retirement approaches. But... Growth stocks consistently outperform income stocks and certainly fixed investments. And this is Peter's words, not mine. I'm 62 years old, he says, and mostly retired now. I've got 75% in growth and 25% in dividend paying stocks, in brackets, he says, with growth upside. Nice. 35% of my stocks are mostly are overseas, mostly in the USA. During the market correction of February and March, my portfolio fell 35% in value. And this is speaking of lessons and stories, but has since increased by... 105%. If that's not the absolute poster for not selling in a panic, that's right there. Why should I follow the traditional advice? Peter asks. 
to move out of growth stocks at retirement. It seems to me that strategy would cost me a lot of the gains. I'd rather stay with growth and live with volatility. Regards, Peter. Why should he, mate? Why, should, why would you tell Peter he has to sell his growth stocks? What is wrong with you? I think I would. I'm thinking I'm getting a T-shirt written up saying that I'd rather I'd rather stay with growth and live with volatility. I think that is a brilliant T-shirt. Right when you there. do, I will post it on our socials, and you can post it on your seldom used straw man investor account. Yeah, I, look, it, it's brilliant. I mean, so the one caveat would be here. It, it depends. I so some people are fortunate enough that they've got enough cash for a 35% fall means that they can leave that untouched or don't have to draw down on it too much and can be there for the eventual recovery. Now, this was an incredibly rapid crash in recovery by historical standards. I mean, they have been known to go on for much, much longer <laughs> than this. So we've got, to, we've got to remember that as well. But I think if you've got the means, then yeah. You know, the worst thing you can do is put it all into these these terribly, uh, very safe but terribly mm. low returning investments. Mm. Um, there, there is a huge opportunity cost with that, and that that's the choice you make. People, some people, mm. will say, "I'm actually happy with that trade off." Yes, I'm going to yes, get yes. much lower returns, but my money is 100 percent there no matter what happens, mm-hmm. and I'm happy for that compromise. And that's a personal decision, so you can't say it's right or wrong if that's if that's for you. If you're someone like Peter who I'd say seems like a very savvy and smart person who says, yeah, I, look, I'm in a situation where I don't I don't need to draw down on my capital uh, too much. Um, I don't mind the volatility. And uh, yeah, that, the com- compensation I get for that is far, far superior longer term returns. So yeah, I agree with Peter. You've absolutely nailed it, mate. Um, I'm going to add just a... So I, I hardly endorse everything you said. Um, I, I will... <laughs> I feel like I'm... Here's the thing, right? We've I've been through so many of these. You've been through so many of these. We kind of know how this stuff plays out often. And the first thing is the downtrend can go for a very, very long time, right? So, yeah, uh, it really can. Short and sharp recession. Yeah. Yes, the GFC was a grinding eighteen month. I'm trying to think of a, a polite way to put it, but it was it was just a miserable, miserable like being dragged down the asphalt road on your knees. Like it was just it just didn't stop, and it was like you know it was awful, awful. And if you could still last and follow your strategy and eventually get some growth and and go on with it then that's fantastic but the person who said i can do this for a month i can do this for i can do this for, three months. I do this for six i'm going to last a year doing this i'm good for 15 months and then they go oh that's it okay I, i'm done now like capitulations right capitulations mm. and that's I, I know i say it all the time i said it about margin and I, I i don't really apologize for it other than for the sake i'm being repetitive is just You've really, 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 really got to know yourself, you know. And if you're going to eventually capitulate at some point, if you're going to panic, panic early. So, Peter, if you can, if you can withstand a two-year recession where your shares not only thirty-five percent but forty-five percent over that two years, bit by bit by bit by bit by bit, with no end in sight, and you know that you know that you know you can do it, then that's fantastic. You should keep doing that. And I actually think, and, and to your point, that is absolutely the best approach historically, and has always been the best approach to not sell. To see it through and to maximise the gains you get, it's like asset allocation. People talk about, you know, rebalancing assets. If you look at that Vanguard chart over thirty years, it's never been a good idea to go to cash or to gold or to property or to anything else. And yet, people will do it from time to time because they feel like they should, they have to, they want to. Somehow, it's smarter. Long term, if you could do a thirty, if you said to me in nineteen ninety one, will you put put a hundred dollars here, come back and get the money in twenty twenty one? Never look at it. Shares is easy. Now, even if I had to look at it every day, shares is still easy for me because I'm used to it and I'm not not that I'm any better than anybody else. I've just been doing this long enough as have you to be just kind of inured to the you know, the, the, the stomach churning roller coaster of investing. 
Um, and if you can do that, then yes, you're absolutely right, Peter. So I would absolutely say, if you want to maximize your returns, I would go for the highest possible total return stocks I could find. And that's what you need to do. Doesn't matter if they pay dividends or not, whether they grow or not, you know, whatever's going to give you the highest possible. They could be no growth, no dividend stocks that are trading at three times earnings that are going to be trading at 15 times earnings at a much higher in five years' time. That might be the best returning stock. So I wouldn't go growth or value. I wouldn't go dividends or non-dividends. I would just say find the best portfolio you can, diversified, of course, to give you the best possible returns, as long as you have the ability to stick with that no matter what happens. And as Andrew says, as long as you don't need the cash. Because you know selling selling shares at a 40% discount in the middle of the GFC for for income, which, I, I, you know, I mean... <laughs> Stuff electricity is expensive already, right? Without effectively paying double the price because your shares have halved. Like that's that's just miserable. So again, you, you know yourself, you know your own circumstances, but have a have a think about how I, that might I, work. I for just you. add to so Peter saying, you know, he's sixty two and mostly retired. And yep. um, I, I look as a younger man, I would have thought, oh, it's ancient. These days, <laughs> these yeah, days it doesn't look that old. Yeah, and 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 <laughs> an actuary will tell you. In fact, yes. so we know what. I don't want to get morbid, but you know, life yes. average life expectancies are at birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally speaking, though, you've made it to sixty. Um, yep. Your life expectancy is actually pretty good. It's, it's yep. longer than that average. So you have decades, you know, all going well, mm-hmm. of left to invest. So it's yep. not as though, you, you know, it's not like the old saying, I don't buy green bananas anymore, you know, because you're going to have time for them to ripen, you know. Yeah, yeah. You've got, you got ages. You've got ages to That's invest. And, and, and to put that 60, like, you, let, let's say if you, you make it another couple of decades, you've got 20 years in a low <laughs> return bond. Yep. Think about think about twenty years of compounding and what yep. that can do for you. Yep. You know, <laughs> or if not you directly, at least your uh, your heirs. So uh, yeah, I, I think Peter's spot on. One one last one, mate. I I'm going to turn this on to the people who aren't sixty two. So people mm-hmm. like you, you and I, we're both twenty three. So people like us um, and, and people younger than us. <laughs> it's hardly possible to be younger than us these days, but uh, <laughs> apparently apparently it's possible. Um, you started by saying it depends on the situation you're in. Some people are lucky enough to be able to live off the income from their shares. Yeah. And I have to sell to, to fund that, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to say if you're 50, 40, 30, 20, if you're listening to your mum's uh, podcast player in the car and you're 13, um, you, you you can take uh, – it, it, look, Peter's got a great decision, a great problem to have, right? You can have an even better problem to have. If you get to 62 and you don't have to sell for income, you're going to solve – you're not going to have to ask Peter's question. No. Right, so my, you know, it's really like, it's stupidly hard at twenty three to think about sixty two, right? Just, it just, it's, it's as you said, Andrew. It felt so, so old, so far away, <laughs> so far. So away. I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ask if don't if you're not gonna do it for, for you, trust me and do it for me. Do it for Andrew because you know <laughs> Andrew's better looking and funnier than me. Do it for, do it for both of us. It just, just you know, these guys they're old and sixty two is old, and I can't imagine being that old, but I'll do it. Just please say that for me. And just start now, right? Start so when you get to 62, you don't have to say, which one do I do and what if I have to pay living expenses? Now, for all I know, Peter's past that and he's not doing it to pay for living expenses either. That's fantastic. But if you can get to that point of not needing to sell down your shares to get income to pay your living expenses, that is financial independence right there, my friend. And that's what I think we all should aim for. So if, it's, if there's any motivation from Peter's question when you're not in his situation yet, you will be at some point. Get there in the best possible way you can is my, my general view. Nicely said. I'm going to squeeze one last one in from Ryan, mate, because okay. it's about it's about property, and we know you have a, a some thoughts on property. It's not going to be a short answer then. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Expletive ridden. No, it won't be this time. We'll we'll keep it clean. Hi, Scott and Ram. First off, big ups to you and Andrew on a great podcast. I've been listening for about a year now and love the insights you guys give. Thank you, mate. I've got a question for the mailbag on fractional investing. 
in residential property. Companies like BrickX allow you to invest and own a share of different investment properties through a trust. You then collect your portion of after expenses rent and can realize any capital gains when you sell your share. Now, I'm a firm believer in share market investing to build long-term wealth. And I know Ram isn't the biggest fan of property returns, says Ryan. But what about if a hypothetical 25-year-old was saving for a house deposit and looking to buy in five years? Let's say I can get 7% from fractional ownership in property. That's a 2% net rental yield and 5% capital appreciation. Or 10% from a share portfolio. Would sacrificing a potential 3% in returns to have a deposit its value is correlated to the value of the housing market, be worth it. The idea of a share market slump right around the time you want to buy a house would be a real blow. While a property slump would hurt my deposit holdings, but also the drop in the asking price on those potential houses. It's quite a nice way to think about it. Any tips for would-be homeowners Hmm. who don't like 1% savings accounts? (laughs) Cheers, Ryan. Mate, if you're getting 1%, can I tell you, I I looked for a term deposit the other day for someone. Have you seen the numbers on term deposits, Ram? Never looked. I know they're, I know they're uh, Mate, offensively low. Are, I, I used to get more at call account. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't find that. I, I, well, I didn't look hard. It was uh, yeah. relative, um, the bank that we, they bank with, and, and the highest I think was 0.6% and it was locked away for five years. I was like, man. Jimmy, <laughs> so if you yeah. get 1%, Ryan, well done. Um, I love the concept of, of correlating the investment to the yeah. house purchase. That makes a whole lot of sense because mm. you don't want to get in the situation where the share market drops, the house, house market, housing market rises, you're like, oh, bugger. Now, of course, it could get the other way. You could have the share market rise, the housing market drop. So there's both ways to go. But as Ryan's, I think, intuiting, um, that's, a, that's a risky bet, right? Because if you get it right, you make money. If you get it wrong, you're locked out of the housing market for another five years. So mm. what do you reckon? What, what, we can't tell Ryan, of course, what he should do. Uh, but what do you reckon in general? Um, can I just uh, clarify an earlier point? Um, I, I, I'm not against property returns. Property returns have been great. Like mm-hmm. it's an objective fact. So it's, you know, I, I, I do think a lot of them have been unwarranted and that further gains from this point will be much more difficult to achieve. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, and I, I think property is, is actually a wonderful asset, but just like mm-hmm. any asset, it should be bought with prudence and with an eye to value. So just, just a small clarifying remark there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I would say this. I think I love the thinking on correlation, but the reality is uh, if the share market was to drop to any significant degree, to enough of a degree where it's going to be material on on, on your rationale here, property market's probably going to drop too um, Mm -hmm. and vice versa. You know, the, the Australian economy is so 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 tied to, to, to housing. Um, I just, I couldn't see any sustained significant economically driven share market crash where house prices also didn't come down, mm. um, and vice versa. If the, if the housing market fell away, I'm, I'm sure a lot of companies on the ASX would, would really struggle with that. So I, I actually I'd be careful in in considering them decoupled. Mm. I think I think they're actually more. I don't know what the exact correlation is, but I think it'd be reasonably high. Then you're left with the uh, now this is the hypothetical. Would I prefer seven percent over five years or ten percent over five years? Yeah. Um, now the correlation make the, or potential for no correlation definitely makes that different. If you're now looking at it as being much more correlated, then for me, I'm probably more tempted to take that extra 3% a year for five years, which would be material, um, and do it that way. But you know what? Mm. I kind of think this is the horses for courses thing. At the end of the day, you're diligently saving and you're putting your money into something that's a decent sound investment giving you 7% return. Mm. Yeah, it could have, would have, should have. You know, you'll all look <laughs> back and realise that I should have put it all on X, Y, and mm. Z. But you're, you're still... 
God, yeah, we, I think we get a lot of questions from people who are already so much on the right path and we're sort of fine-tuning. And this is, mm. I think Ryan's at that kind of point there. It's just sort of like you've got the big ideas down, right? Like you're not, you, either path is, whatever path is you're more comfortable with um, is, is probably the best one. I, I would I would probably go shares over property, mm. um, but that's just me. But it's hard, it's hard to sort of shoot down the logic or rationale there. Again, mm. except to say I'd just be careful with that idea that they're not correlated. Mm. So I think that's I think that's right. I think I agree, mate. I, uh, I Ryan Ryan's first point. It's almost the last question he asked, which is I'm getting one percent. How can I get some more? Trying to save a house deposit, and then if I'm going to do that, is it better to correlate or not correlate? And I get I get all those things, and that that's kind of the crux of the problem. I think is that trying to get to a house deposit in a fast rising housing market is tough. Not uh, well, completely coincidentally, as it turns out, but but in a in a nice way. Um, there's been well the usual suspects mortgage brokers saying there's going to be a um, there's going to be a housing recession if the government caps lending. Now again, there there are some really good people in the, in the mortgage market, and I don't want to disparage the lot. Um, I'm also though you know when when any of an interest group comes out with a view of any description on something like that where they might also lose out, you got to wonder whether you know how. Now, how seriously to take it? Again, I really like. I want to be. I want to be fair here because there are some people I'm sure who genuinely believe that, and, and with very reasonable ways to do it. But also, let's be honest. Um, if you're going to lose out when something happens, and you say it might be a bad idea, uh, the, the rest of us are entitled to ask to what degree that's influenced by the personal implications for those people involved, and the corporate implications for the yeah. companies. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, self-interest, good way. So, I, I'd actually start Ryan by saying, mate, if it's five years, I would almost not. If you here's my usual answer on on large purchases. If your five year period is fixed, in other words, if you got to buy a property on the first of October twenty twenty six, don't invest it at all. Take your one percent. Go, man, that sucks, and just wait for five years and do it. Because frankly, if you're if you're going to for a deposit now, you're hopefully um, you know investing over that time. The dollar value impact of that investing is not nothing but it's probably not going to break the bank either way. And if you knew you had to buy a house on the 1st of October, 2026, I wouldn't risk it on either BrickX or shares. Not that I expect shares to be meaningfully lower, not that I worry about a crash, just because if it, you know, if we have a COVID recession the day before you've got to settle and all of a sudden you're 30%, 30% worse off or a housing market crash and you're 30% worse off, you know, some people have, uh, have, have put down deposits years ago for, for you know, development properties they're making a fortune on right now. There was a time back in the day where you put down your deposit and then 12 months later the house is worth less and you've still got to settle on it. We've been there before as well. So just keep that in mind. I wouldn't do it at all, mate. I know that's hyper-conservative. I don't apologize for that. Um, I, I just wouldn't do it. If though, you're aiming to it in five years if the money is in a good place, in other words, um, you know, I might buy on the 1st of October 2026 or six months either side, 12 months either side of that, depending on how circumstances are and how my deposit's looking, then I would do something very different. I would actually go for the highest return. Now, is it possible housing outperforms shares over that five-year period? Absolutely. And would I blame you if you decide to correlate it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, as long as, by the way, those correlations are real. So if you're talking about, you know, BrickX in investing in a particular suburb or city where you're not buying or a particular asset class like commercial property rather than residential, then also think about that, right? Because the correlations aren't correlations. The Darwin property market, the Hobart property market, the Perth property market, and Sydney property market are all doing very different things right now. So again, depend, just be careful that pre, not all shares are the same as Woolies. Not all properties are the same as the one you might be looking to buy in five years' time. So also just keep that in mind. Um, if it was up to me, I would go shares. Um, I think they'll do better over the long term than property. I think the uh, the probabilities are in favour of shares. You also, by the way, get a better return in total, plus some franking credits if you're investing in dividend paying shares, a whole lot of other stuff besides. Um, also check the fees of things like fr- fractional re- um, property ownership, make sure you're actually getting an after, after-tax return. 
other thing, by the way, is the seven percent you talk about is as hypothetical as the ten percent. So um, it, it's hard to really know for sure what you're getting out of that one. So that's all I've got for that one, mate. Anything from you? No, no, no. Good, good question, though. It's a very good question. Now we are finished for the day, but before we go, I hope you have subscribed to the Good Oil Podcast. I hope you have subscribed to the Motley Fools YouTube channel. I hope you are following Andrew on Twitter. He's now going to post his new T-shirt. T- What's the T-shirt going to say? Remind me. <sighs> Furiously scrolling. <laughs> I can't remember either. I, yeah. I, think it's, I think it's fair to say the T-shirt's not going to... If, if, here's the thing. If you want Andrew to wear the T-shirt you talked about the episode, just to tweet us. Tweet, tweet at Andrew at no. Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest and say, Andrew, wear the T-shirt. Here's the T-shirt. If you're a T-shirt designer, feel free to make up a royalty-free design <laughs> for Andrew. I'm sure he will follow Why do you invite this? On his Why do you? Why? <laughs> Because I can't. Because you're on Twitter anyway. You wouldn't even notice. Uh, he, Andrew, Andrew will promise, I'm sure, this week to check on Twitter. Uh, so, Sage underscore Simeon or Strawman Invest. And it was, I'd rather stay with growth and live with volatility, which is there just you go. from Peter. There you go. There's the T-shirt right there. Andrew will post a photo of that on his Twitter account this week. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter or Insta, you can do that at TMF Scott P. You can follow The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. If you're on Facebook, have a look at Scott Phillips Money. So it's facebook.com slash Scott Phillips Money or slash The Motley Fool Australia. Let me spit that out. Um, that's it. We'll give you all the socials. You can also email us, info at fool.com.au. If you've got a long question you want us to answer and you'd rather send it through email than whack it on one of the socials, you can absolutely do that. Um, in fact, almost every question this week was coming from email. So thank you to those who emailed us. Haven't got as many Insta questions recently. I'm, I wonder if we're leaving the side down there. Uh, maybe we can do a comp- – if, if we get a certain number of Insta questions, maybe we'll make Andrew join Instagram. We'll <laughs> Ram you for that? Yeah, I'll go for that. Whatever, no, there's, whatever, there's, whatever there's moves the, the dial. There's Instag and then Ram, right? So it, it, it does itself. Yeah, that's true. It's its own, it's its own thing. Yeah. You really should be there. All right, let's see if we can make that happen. Hashtag get Ram on Insta. Uh, that's it for this week for Motley Fool Money. We'll see you on Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Till then, fool on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.